Well, good morning, Sarah Heppelaw, on this Valentine's Day, 2023. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. Is it me or did, is it a little hot in here? It does feel a little hot. You know why I think it's a little hot? Because why? I think that America's sweetheart just walked into the room. Julia I, I don't Roberts? Know. Julia Roberts? No, the other sweetheart, more contemporary sweetheart. Oh, an America's sweetheart for our time. That's right. Steve Kornacki. Steve Kornacki, welcome that, to Smoke Him If You Got Him. <laughs> that is a quite an introduction. <laughs> Do you think you could ever possibly live up to that? I don't think that title quite applies. I thought of the movie too when, when I heard you talking about that. So I thought that's how people refer to you because there's like <laughs> only three people that everybody in America likes and that is Keanu Reeves, Dolly Parton, and Steve Kornacki. That, is that is that the current list? It's, I think it's, it's so. It's changed throughout that... my lifetime. I remember when Shelley Fabre was was uh, in the in the conversation, but that Steve, might have been a while not, ago. You're not old enough to know who <laughs> the hell that is. <laughs> I barely know who that is. And Annette Funicello. <laughs> yeah, you're America's sweetheart, just like um, uh, oh God, what's her name? Charo. Charo was who I was going. Oh, to. Oh, okay, now you're now you're more yeah, contemporary yeah, yeah. than me. Yeah, I got a, got a video of her dancing with Ben Gazzara on the on a Jerry Lewis telethon. It's crazy. I'll find it. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Uh, where um, are you coming to us from? Uh, this I deep inside of Thirty Rock. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm on the second, the often forgotten second floor of Thirty Rock. That's hot. I also like to be deep inside 30 Rock. <laughs> I'm sorry, Steve. You you knew me before I decided that I needed to make everything a sexual double entendre. <laughs> um, but you'll forgive me. Um, okay, I <clears throat> I wrote a little introduction for you for the for the few people in our listening audience that don't know who you are. Will you indulge me and allow me to read this? By all means. Okay. Steve Kornacki is the elections analyst for MSNBC. He's a longtime political journalist who wrote a book in 2018 called The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism, a book that I bought for both my father and brother because I loved the way that it laid out how we arrived at our current fraught moment. Excuse me, but he's more commonly known and wildly beloved for his elections coverage on MSNBC where his egghead analysis of the 2020 election seemed to be the one thing America could agree on. According to The Gap, his khakis of choice, he single-handedly caused the number of straight-fit Palomino brown khakis to spike by 90%. Now, what this doesn't mention is that the number was probably about five the year before then, but okay, fine. And he was named one of people's sexiest men in 2020, a fact that totally blew my mind, along with everyone that worked with him. The internet has lovingly nicknamed him Map Daddy, among many other things, but I know him as Steve because we worked together at Salon many years ago and remained friends. His nickname then was Snackwells because he ate Snackwells from the bodega near the office every day. We're here to talk about his outstanding new podcast, The Revolution, about the rise and fall of Newt Gingrich. Steve, welcome to Smoke Him If You Got Him. Uh, what an introduction. Thank you. Quick question. When you, when you bought the book 
for your father and your brother? Did you buy separate copies or did you buy one that was shared by them? Can you imagine if like it's Christmas and there's one gift under the tree and my dad opens it and I'm like, hey, dad. So when you're done with that, can you give that to my brother? I'm trained by my publisher to try to maximize sales. So I was, I was yeah, no, actually what I did was I downloaded two PDFs from the Internet and I just forwarded them to them. No, no, no. I bought two separate copies. Wow. Well, this is the royalty on that's about two cents, but I, I appreciate it very much. <laughs> I think you get 25 cents on hardbacks. You get more on hardbacks than paperbacks. Uh, yeah. Although you have to, I, I've learned you have to hit a, this may have happened to you, but it did not happen to me. You have to hit a certain threshold. Then the royalties start coming in, but I'm still a, a, a couple hundred thousand copies away from the threshold. So not after there. this podcast, there we not go. after that introduction, <laughs> my friend. Um, yeah. So, uh, Steve, we wanted to talk uh, before we get to all the, you know, the amazing podcast that you did and that I slightly resent you for because it, it was so good and it sounded so easy for you. Did. It, that was really annoying, don't you think, it Nancy? It was really annoying. I mean, you you have the just like the best delivery and it's really peppy, but it's also really natural. And the music was amazing. This was just, it was so super pro and it just like hit every note, almost like a piece of music. Like da, 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 da. It was really, really, besides being just incredibly informative, you just yeah. have such a great, great delivery, Steve. It's really yeah. awesome. Thanks. And that, that, the credit there is, I mean, you say the music too. I'd never made a, I, I was wanting to do sort of a long form narrative, you know, podcast. And this was my first go at it. And, you know, I had no idea what it was going to sound like when it was done. And I mean, the, 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 I had nothing to do with the music. And yet it, that jumped right out at me listening to it. I was like, wow, this adds such a dimension to this. I had no idea. Um, the, the, the production team, though, they were just total pros. I, you know, I had somebody who was kind of coaching me on the, you know, the delivery, you know, like they decided early on, they were like, you know what, you should not be sitting down and reading the script. You oh. should be standing up. Oh, and, interesting. You know, yeah, it was, it, it really, there was a lot, there were a lot of takes involved and the work could feel really tedious, you know, in that recording studio, it's been a lot of hours in there. But, you know, when I heard the finished product, I was like, you know, not for anything that I had contributed to it, but for what the production team had contributed to it, I was blown away. And I was like, this is, wow, this is, this is, this the elements are incredible. There are a lot of backstage tricks on podcasts that I wasn't aware of. When I did America's Girls, one of the things that they had me do was to start a sentence like I was talking to a friend and be like, hey, Nancy. So the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders began in and then they would just cut out the hey, Nancy, but it, it would carry a kind of conversational tone. That's like the trick when you when you make a phone call, smile. Because yes. the person will hear you smiling. On they the made other me end. smile during things too, which was actually got kind of physically painful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because your you know your your mouth is starting to like get sore. Yeah, but they know they know if you work with one of these professional teams, they know what they're going for. They've done this, and they know what this is going to look like or sound like. I should say, you know, when they edited it all together, and. Um, and it was it was a real education to me seeing how they put all these pieces together. Now I want to do another one because I'm 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 I've got the bug. Well, you're fantastic at it. And but before we talk more about that, uh, we want to talk Super Bowl. Yeah, 
Yep. I I don't usually, I haven't watched the Super Bowl in a number of years, but I watched it this year just sort of hoping for a really good game, which I think we got. And since I didn't even really know who was playing because I'm a (laughs) New York City girl, just don't pay that much attention. I went on beforehand. I'm like, well, who do I like? I was like, you know, this Isaiah Pacheco is really, really cute. He is a handsome. That's a good handsome, way to that's handsome I'm, I man. Support this way of choosing a team. That's right. And I was like, okay, it's Kansas City, and I gotta say, I think I helped them get over the edge. I think that I think that's what did it. Well, if you hadn't watched a Super Bowl in a few years, you picked a good one to come back to because this is yeah, truly, this was one of the most entertaining I've ever seen. Where were I, uh, I was pulling for the Kansas City Chiefs because they are the former Dallas Texans, as you may know. Uh, they originated as a team by Lamar Hunt in 1960 and were actually a bigger team than the, Dal- than the Dallas Cowboys, who were the underdogs for throughout the 60s. But I'm curious, who were you pulling for and what was your experience of the game? Yeah, I was I was with uh, Kansas City. Um, I like I like Mahomes. I like Andy Reid, the veteran coach. I like the storyline. You know, he was he was an e- the Eagles coach. You know, way back, um, had a good run there. Donovan McNabb was the quarterback. They made a Super Bowl. Um, you know, and eventually it just he just kind of fizzled out, and I think he ended up getting fired by the Eagles. You know, same owner who's still there now, and uh, gets the job at Kansas City. Tries to start over, and about five years in, gets the quarterback of a lifetime. You know, really in in Patrick Mahomes. And since then, I mean, he's taken it to a new level out there. Obviously, this is the second Super Bowl he's won. But I always like uh, I always like that storyline. I like the uh, sort of the aging veterans who who still have the competitive fire, who still want to, you know, who aren't just there to be there, who are there to win. And to get that, you know, to get him in the Super Bowl against the team he used to coach, the team that fired him, the team that lost confidence in him. And he shows him. He comes mm-hmm. back, double-digit deficit. And beats him. I I, I kind of like that. So yeah, I was with the Chiefs. And, you uh, tend to go it. for an underdog story too. Is my memory of you? Yes, love the underdogs. Uh, have lost. Uh, unfortunately, I like to occasionally place a wager or two on these things. And oh, uh, you're a, you're people don't know this about <laughs> you. You used to be quite the gambler. I don't know if you still uh, are. I uh, well, yeah, but you know, it's the thing when they say you get you got to bet with your head and not with your heart. And I, I say, what's the fun in that? Yeah, what uh, what did you think of that holding call at the very end? Well, I think right. If I was, you know, if I'd been an Eagles fan, I'd be sitting here screaming about it. But as a yeah. Chiefs fan, so I was fine with it. It's one of those yeah. where it was technically, <laughs> technically, it was the right call. But it's also the refs have discretion; they don't have yeah. to right. call that, you know. Right. And, and it didn't have to in that moment. Right. It's one of those things like let them play, let them play, let mm-hmm. them play. But it was technically the right call, and of course, I was happy about it. So. <laughs> What's the deal with Philly fans? What? Why? Why are they so angry? <laughs> they've had some rough. Uh, uh, they've had some some lean years. Um, I, I think a lot of these northeast cities. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I come from Massachusetts. I know Boston fans. Uh, there's a lot of resentment towards them now because the so much success for the Patriots and even you know the Celtics, even the Bruins. You know, just, uh, Red Sox have won a bunch of World Series. But I know when I was growing up, you know, Boston was a city that, that you know. Patriots were, you know, you barely qualified as a professional franchise. The, the Red Sox had what was called the, the curse of the Bambino. Yeah, yeah. When I was yeah. a kid, you know, they had traded yep. Babe Ruth in, you know, 1918, <laughs> hadn't won a World Series since. Um, and there was, um, and I know that the atmosphere at Red Sox games, especially when the Yankees came to town, you know, vulgar chants from the crowd. And, and, you know, just so I know Boston fans kind of had that reputation for a while, too. So I, I don't want to be too hard on the Philly fans, although. 
I, I do think Philly was the stadium where a few years ago, a few meaning about 20, where they actually, <clears throat> I think the city actually put in a, um, a detention center and processing center uh, in the stadium on Sundays. So the rowdiest fans could actually be arrested and yes. go through the judicial process on the, on the spot. So Very I, think expedient. When, when you're, I don't know if they do that anymore, but. And, you know, we should, I mean, uh, we have Philly fans in our audience and, and, and I know at least two of them, uh, Alana and Michelle are my friends and, and they're adorable. And, and I love the heart of uh, a city that supports a team that, that might not win, you know, and is an amazing team. The first half of that game, I thought Philly had it. I mean, there was, didn't seem to be a question. Well, everybody on the Fox News guys there, every single one of them went for, went for Philly. I remember Terry Bradshaw was the last, he's like, gosh, I really feel like I should just take Kansas City in order to just go against the grain. And like, well, are you going to do? He's like, no, 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 Eagles. It's like, too bad. I've done a few of those when I do the uh, uh, end of the season Sunday Night Football stuff for uh, NBC on the pregame show. They have all of the on-air people make the pick for the game that night. And they've had a few where, I mean, this is like a list of 10 people. And they've had a few where there's total consensus, you know, 10 for 10 with one team. And then it goes the other way. And you can see when it comes down to the last guy, sometimes there's a little bit of pressure just like, hey, maybe I should just pick the other one so that we don't have the screen full of everybody potentially being wrong. So can I ask, I don't know if you can reveal it. Did you, uh, did you place a bet on this game? You don't have to tell uh, us. Did I place a bet? Or did I play? <laughs> let's, let's, put it, let's put it this way. I bet the one of my one of my favorite traditions, and it's because it's the stupidest bet that you could make. I, I mean, there are some people who say every bet you make is stupid. Point taken. But I think the stupidest bet you could make in any sport uh, every year is the coin toss of the Super Bowl. Oh, so God. I love it. I love it. I, I bet it. I bet it every <laughs> Completely year. Completely arbitrary. <laughs> because it's just what a great feeling. The game hasn't even if you hit it. What a great feeling. The game hasn't even started, and you've won a bet. And it really is a 50-50 bet. It's not it like is, it is literally. It is literally a coin toss. Right. <laughs> yes, it is. Except, they, you know, they, they, they play with the odds a little bit. So anyway, but, so I took heads, and it, it came up tails. So I was, it, it, it put me in a bad mood. I think I'd hit four straight. I think I'd hit four straight coin tosses coming into this one. So right away, I was feeling the pressure. But I was, uh, I was on Kansas City. And then, you know, the, the, it's an explosion of sports gambling now. You can yeah. do. Oh man! Um, yeah, I mean, and now with these apps, there the com- and also the commercials. Did you notice? Like, because I watched about an hour before the game started, the the how do you say it? Cryon, Tryon, the thing at the bottom of the Chiron, of the, Chiron and all the ads, the betting ads were bananas. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. they're really pushing it. And I read something the other day. I mean, the amount of sports betting in New Jersey alone, it's it's crazy. It's 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 big. Yeah, in New York State as well. I mean, it's it's everywhere that's. I mean, I think it's eventually. I can't imagine it won't be fit all fifty states very very yeah. soon because it's just it's the, the revenue is just you know, and what it is is it's like I, I think what it really is is if you remember about twenty years ago, fantasy sports really yes uh, you know really took off, and I, I had so many friends who were so into you know fantasy baseball, fantasy football, whatever it was. And, you know, they, you'd find them watching the games, like watching an NFL game and not really following who's winning, who's losing. They were following, does this running back have 80 yards yet? Has this quarterback been sacked two and a half times? You know, uh, they're following the stats of the players for their fantasy teams. And I think that's just kind of folded into sports gambling because you're essentially betting fantasy propositions now. You know, so it's like I, I was watching the game on Sunday night with somebody who might have had. 30 bets in the game and not a single one of them was about which team would win. It was about 
who would get the first touchdown? You know, would more than two people throw a touchdown pass during the game? What was the total, you know, totals, wow, all wow. that that's, it's all stuff that I think would have been, it's, it's, it's all stuff. This is the, the same kind of person who would have been doing, and may still do it, but you would have been heavily into just like fantasy football 20 years ago and watching the game for fantasy stats. Now it's basically proposition bets on player stats. Fascinating. You know, I wasn't prepared for one of my favorite moments of the Super Bowl to be the national anthem. And America the Beautiful. You liked too. it. That You oh. liked that one. Uh, I did not even know who Chris Stapleton was. And I was really blown away by his performance of that. It was just open hearted and beautiful and different. I think other than Whitney Houston, who still gives me chills when I listen to it. I think that's my favorite. I mean, I'm not a completist in any way. I don't I'm sure I've missed some. But I just yeah, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was so kind of low key at you know, mm. so much of the performance of that tends to be about kind of melisma and and sort of like vocal fireworks. And he did none of that. Agree. It's interesting. Yeah, I thought I didn't have a strong take on it, but it's interesting to, to hear your reaction to it. Um, I've always heard it's just it, I've, I've heard a lot of musicians say it's a hard song to do um, and, and to do right. And I'm trying to think of the. Yeah, you mentioned Whitney Houston, 91. What are the other memorable yeah, do, remember, yeah, do you even remember? I, what I remember uh, was when I was young, how excited my parents were when Neil Diamond was chosen oh, yes. for the 87 Super Bowl National Anthem and how disappointed they were in the <laughs> performance. So, um, that's, that's, what, that's the one that sticks out. But I, yeah, year to year, I can't even remember too many of them. Um, I was listening to a sports radio show and I uh, they they mentioned that the shortest performance in Super Bowl history was Neil Diamond. The short the shortest mm. performance of uh the 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 national anthem oh, yeah. was you, 1 minute and 2 seconds, which is like a minute shorter than than most people take. How do you shorten it? I mean, what do you sing it in double time? Like what? How, just what? Eminem it. You just, you know, you just like. I think Neil Diamond might have been at that stage in his career when he was speaking the words. So that could have. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we had a similar. Uh, we were. What did you think of the uh, of of Rihanna? Yeah, no, I this is, I, I am. I, so I was actually at. I, I don't do the the halftime show because I just I okay. can't. I, I don't know. I don't know. Sarah can tell you. I don't know any music that's less than 40 years old, I'm going to say. So I was I was at the Super Bowl last year out in L.A. I know the halftime show last year was a huge deal to people our age. And uh, it was I, I oh, that was it, the the hip hop one. Wasn't right. It? And I was NBC had the game and they actually I was out there and it was a great experience. But to me, the the great thing about the halftime show last year was that's when I got my dinner. Because I went into the concourse and it was it was absolutely a ghost town. There was not a single person in there, not a line. So there I just go. I went and I had a chicken sandwich and and I heard a lot of racket behind me. But <laughs> so cute, Nancy. Maybe we talk about Rihanna's performance after Steve leaves because sure. I think it deserves a little bit more time. And I want to I want to talk that through, but I don't want to keep him while we're talking okay. about it. Steve, I have a question for you. Is there one like if there's a song that you're going to play on loop all day, what would it be? Uh it uh, you know it very hey you know what I might I have the uh, do you guys have Spotify? Yeah, sure. We've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> But again, yeah. this is, I'm behind the time, so I, I have oh, it. Oh, we are but, too. Uh, 
it gives you this list every year of the song you played the most. Oh, sure. Your 2022 songs. I'm are... seeing if I can find what that what that list was. Your top songs. Uh, oh, okay. It's Bobby V's Take Good Care of My Baby. <laughs> I don't even know what that song <laughs> wow. is. Wow. Oh, it's great. Be just as kind as you can be. I, I could actually sing that, but I didn't know it was by Bobby V. That's kind of a, that's kind of a, that's a. That's oh. my era. See, that's what, when you asked me about the halftime show and, you know, yeah, Bobby V, unfortunately, is no longer with us. But if there were a tribute to Bobby V, you know, that's the kind of halftime show I'd. Uh, it's a I great mean, song. Steve. Yeah, there, I got, the, I got yeah. the Eagles on here, too. Uh, oh, so good. What's your Eagles jam? What's your, take, what's your. Take it to the limit. Sure. Uh, Do you like um, Peaceful, Easy Feeling? That's good. No, yeah. That, uh, the Eagles have a bunch of, you know, Desperado. Uh, come to your not, senses. Oh, come down from um, your fences. The uh, Lion uh, Eyes is. Oh. Yeah. I yep. think, actually, this, yep. I think that'd be my favorite Eagles. It's so mellow and it's a little sad, but uh, I do. Uh, I like that one a lot. I, I think Take It Easy is my favorite. Uh, it's got a couple of just really, really great lines. Um, what is that line that I love so much? There's a girl, my lord, in a flat bed Ford. Slow down, down, down to take a look, look at, at me. me. Yeah, it's just such a great vibe. It's and a very visual. upbeat. Yeah, yeah. I still want to go stand on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. Yeah, we, we should take that. a selfie there. It's like it. that. It's like that Beatles thing. Everybody does the picture. Everybody takes. Yeah, 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 I think yeah. there's a version of that in Winslow, Arizona. Road trip. Um. So, Steve, I have a lot of questions here for you, um, and they're all about vegetables. I hope that you're ready. <laughs> okay. Um, what is your f- least favorite vegetable? <clears throat> I'm trying to think what qualifies. Is there, uh, it, broccoli's up there, no question. You really uh, hate broccoli. It is disgusting. No, no, but is asparagus yeah asparagus. that's a vegetable green beans yeah that's it yeah i think green beans are probably my uh i think that's my least favorite vegetable and and i'm asking this because i happen to know that steve is a um if you work with him you will realize that he is famously a hater of vegetables um he will pick a vegetable out of pretty much anything served to him um is that is there a vegetable you like? No, but I'm trying to like, um, you know, for I'm I'm now you know past forty, and you know the doctor wants me to be more mindful of you know of a of a, a, a non snackwell based um, diet plan. <laughs> so I've I there's this what's the it's this uh, healthy salad chain Sweet Garden or Green yeah. or you no know, Sweet right, Greens. They got, yeah. Yes, they got one here in this building, and I've made it my thing to get the. I, I mean, it's. I, I consider it. This is this is my daily medicine. Is I, I order the thing online, and I I do have like the baby uh, baby spinach, uh, oh. sweet potato or yam or whatever it is. You know, I I actually put the. Uh, I do put a little bit of this broccoli in it, and it's. I mean, I hate it. I hate it every day, um, but. I, I feel like I'm supposed to be doing that now. So I, that this is 20 minutes of medicine every day. So my father, who was raised as his father died when he was young, he was raised by his Italian mother. He would not eat a vegetable ever. 
ever, ever, ever. And so she told him mushrooms were meat just to get some sort of sort of plant-based thing in him. Then he went to the Merchant Marines at, at, at like 18 and he was out at sea for six months and he had to get sent home because he got scurvy because he didn't eat one fruit or vegetable wow. in six months. And I will just give you a little hint. He He's like you, Steve, like every vegetable to him was absolutely disgusting, like even lettuce, like, but he was, he, in as he got older, he found he was able to eat spinach. Like somehow, like, like, like raw spinach, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, hello. No, like cooked with like some butter or some Parmesan cheese or something on it. Like he could do that. So you guys obviously have some similar DNA there. So that was the one that seemed to be okay for him. Was I've, a, I've avoided scurvy so far, okay. as, best, as <laughs> yeah. best I could tell. You're not um, planning to join the Merchant Marines, are you? I actually, I actually remember. I mean, I've, I've, I've got uh, uh, you know some uh, <clears throat> hypo chondriacal uh, tendencies and i remember thinking uh, for some reason when i was in college i had i had a constellation of symptoms that i googled and it, it suggested scurvy and i went to the 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 uh clinic at, at my school and they laughed me out telling me they had they had never seen a case and it was it was like the buccaneers of the 16th century got it or something and they're like you don't have scurvy i, I also like, well, have rickets thank you, you know? <laughs> Oh, you're so cute. Um, okay, I I actually don't have 20 questions about vegetables. I was teasing you. Um, I have 20 questions about Newt Gingrich. Um, so Newt Gingrich is someone who has kind of faded from the political landscape. And, and for many years, I didn't really think about it, but I was pretty happy about that. Why did you want to bring him back? Um. So I, the short answer would be we, you know, I've, I've, like I was saying, I wanted to do a a podcast that covered, um, you know, a big picture story about modern American politics. And when we were conceiving this, it was about a year ahead of the midterm, the 2022 midterm elections. And obviously we were looking at 2022 as the likelihood of the Republicans taking back Congress, um, which they did by a smaller margin than everybody expected. But nonetheless, it, it was the fifth time it proved to be the fifth time in the last generation that we've seen, you know, a president take, you know, office and then two years later lose control of the house. And it, it hadn't been a common occurrence before that. And the pivot point is 94. So we, we said, well, geez, if, if that's where we're heading potentially in 2022, let's treat 94 as the origin story. And if you want to look back at 94, 94 is really not just a story about 1994 in the immediate, you know, events of 1994. What 1994 really is, is the culmination of this two decade drive by Newt Gingrich to change the Republican Party, to change the Republican Party nationally, but really to change the Republican Party within Congress too, and to change the way that Congress itself operated. And, and the big picture story is what I would say is is what Gingrich was trying to do was nationalize politics. And he saw an opportunity starting in the 1970s with the way that the media landscape was changing. But um, can I pause you for a yep. second? What does it mean to nationalize politics? I don't understand that. Right. So the, the Speaker of the House, when, when uh, Newt Gingrich arrived in Congress, was uh, an old uh, old school Irish Catholic, uh, like ward healer politician from Boston named Tip O'Neill. And he was in his, uh, well, he probably would have been in his 60s at that point, late 60s, but he looked like he was 100. And um, his famous saying was, and he wrote a book with, a t with this title, All Politics is Local. And that is, he's a, he came, came of age in the Depression era 
when mm. nobody had a television, when mm. radio was a luxury, and you won your seat in Congress or you know any office by knowing your neighbors, by delivering turkeys on Thanksgiving, you know, by knowing everybody's name when you're walking down the street. He had this famous story about this, you know, old lady who lived next door to him. And she walked up to him on an election day and she said, you know, now, Tip, I'm going to go and I'm going to vote for you today, um, even though you didn't ask me. And the big lesson he learned was, you know, you have to ask everybody for their vote. And the congressman brings back that the way you keep your seat is you bring back the bacon, right? You use your, your role in Congress to get funding, to get money, to get things built in the district, to get – that that was the, the concept that, that, that um, kind of ruled politics. And the parties were not um, – I mean, to say somebody's a Republican today, to say somebody's a Democrat today tends to mean something very specific. Um, you, you pretty much understand the, the, the differences between who's a Republican, who's a Democrat pretty easily – um, the lines were extremely blurry that uh, 40, 50 years ago. So you had genuinely, you had Democrats from the South who were extremely conservative in the same party as extremely liberal union members, you know, or union supported Democrats from the North. You had liberal Republicans, especially from New England, but from other places as well. Liberal, truly like socially liberal to the left of, of, of many Democrats. Um, liberal Republicans and then conservative Republicans from the Midwest. And they, they all, they made sense locally. They fit the local politics, you know, and then they would all come together in Washington. And these two parties had these very, very sort of diffuse coalitions that got together in Washington. And there was a lot of sort of cross pollination where, you know, on one issue, the conservative Democrats would be with the conservative Republicans, all of this. Gingrich wanted, Gingrich saw, with the way media was changing yeah. with, you know, cable television is the big thing. Cable television, you know, suddenly is going to offer uh, an opportunity um, to, to put out a message from Washington, D.C. that um, tells, basically tells people across the country, this is what it means to be a Democrat. This is what it means to be a Republican. Here's the difference between a Democrat. Here's the difference between a Republican. Whether you're in a congressional district in Oregon or Alabama or Vermont or New Mexico, it doesn't matter that you're voting for the party. And and so he, I, I, the, the origin story, I think, is basically this. It's like he looked at 19, 1972, which was the Richard Nixon, George McGovern election. And, and Richard Nixon got reelected, won 49 states, won 61% of the vote. It's one of the biggest landslides in American history. And McGovern was as liberal a candidate as the Democratic Party has ever nominated. And it was politically this just disastrous year for Democrats. And the country clearly rejected McGovern liberalism. And Gingrich believed, basically, if you could make people look at their local congressional district all across the country and see in the Democrat running George McGovern, Republicans could win the House. Republicans could be the majority. And they hadn't been for decades at that point. So that, that was basically his driving mission was to, to nationalize politics, to make people see the Democratic Party as the party of just extreme liberalism, to make people see the Republican Party as a party that was defined by, you know, conserve individualism, opportunity, tax cuts, all these sorts of things. The, the stuff that you might think of as standard issue Republicanism now was very much not the case in, in the 70s. So it was to get Republicans on the same page, running on conservative themes, and then to get Republicans really 
framing Democrats as very liberal, elitist, out of touch, McGovern types. And he believed that contrast would deliver Republicans to a majority, which in 1994 it did. You were saying how he 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 knew he understood the power of cable television and C-SPAN, and you cover that beautifully in your book. But even before then, it seems to me he was prescient in making those tapes. He became this kind of like Tony Robbins kind of figure where he made these tapes and people listened to them, meaning, you know, whether they were congressmen or even other people. And then he was going on and was it Fiery Line? Did he go on? Firing what was the show that he would go on? He substituted in or a, for a crossfire. Wire. Crossfire. Right. Yeah. Sorry, I was got those confused. And um, he really, I mean, that seemed to have a gigantic impact. And that was this is predating C-SPAN by, you know, quite a long time. And this is this is the part of when you say nationalizing politics, right? I mean, it was cutting edge. And and for for people, you know, younger than uh, than me, this this is I, I I don't even know if they can remember what it was like to have a car with an, you know, audio cassettes and a, a tape player, tape deck in the car. But that was that was the technology of the 70s and the 80s. And what Newt was doing was was basically um, recording. He, he would send a series of recordings out to, you know, to a mailing list that got bigger and bigger every year, basically to a farm team, to up and coming Republicans at the local level all across the country. And they would put the tape in while they were driving wherever. And they might hear Gingrich giving a speech or they might hear Gingrich talking directly to them. And what he was trying to do was teach them to communicate the way he did. And so he would he would say, you know, you are a conservative. You believe in opportunity. You you believe in a society that is not based on dependence on the government. You believe in a society that's based on individual opportunity, on freedom. Just teaching the language, teaching the theme, teaching the style. And, and that idea, when I say nationalizing politics, what you're doing is you are creating, because these tapes are going out all over the country, you are creating a team of Gingrich-style Republicans. And these are, they may run, might run for state legislature in Nevada, might run, you know, for Congress in North Carolina, might run for mayor in a city in, in Alabama, but, but they're all delivering this message. And this is, this is building towards, you know, giving the Republican Party that identity, that really cohesive ideological identity that it didn't have when Newt Gingrich came to Congress, but by 1994, it absolutely had. Cable television allowed you to be a participant in this story as well. Um, You know, before we get too far into 1994, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the landscape of your life in 1994. Were you watching this unfold in real time? Did you care about this stuff then? Yeah, this was, I mean, it was fun for me to do this podcast because the, obviously the stuff in the 70s and the 80s predates my consciousness, but um, I was a political, this is shocking revelation, I was a political nerd as a kid. So yeah, I was, you know, I, I was into it and it was all new to me. So it's like, it's like anything else when it's, when you get interested in something and you're experiencing it for the first time, the impressions that it leaves, I think are, are, are extra strong, extra pronounced. So I, I have memories, vivid memories of 94 that, you know, I've now been through so many elections since then, and a lot of them kind of blend together. And I can, I can confuse dates if you're talking about, was that 2012 or 2014? But the 94 stuff is very clear in my mind, because in a lot of ways, it was the first time I was experiencing this stuff. And so I, I remember it, you know, I knew who Newt Gingrich was in 94. Um, I knew, you know, this is Bill Clinton's first midterm. I knew the first two years of the Clinton presidency politically had not gone well for him. He was, you know, his numbers were low. And I remember the talk in 94 was, 
I mean, Democrats had huge majorities in both the Senate and the House. The talk was Republicans had a real chance at picking off the Senate, but the House was, it had been 40 years, 40 years since Republicans had controlled the House, never even close. Um, and a talk, I, I remember watching show after show, reading article after article that just dismissed the possibility. Obviously, Republicans right. won't get the House. They'll have a good year. They'll pick up some seats. And I, I you know, I, I bought into that. I, you know, and I remember watching um, the returns come in on election night. And um, it was this it, when I interviewed Gingrich for the podcast, he likened 1994 to 2016 in terms of the mm -hmm. sense of shock as the results kind of came into focus. I think that's right. Um, you know, just having experienced it in 94 um, uh, and, and going back and looking at it and revisiting with more perspective, it, it, it's the key. It's like nobody really outs. I mean, Gingrich will tell you he thought they were going to get it, but nobody in mainstream kind of political commentary thought Republicans were going to get the House in 1984. And the Newt Gingrich who had this reputation in Washington as just this, you know, bomb thrower and, you know, total renegade that Newt Gingrich was going to become the Speaker of the House. And in the span of a few hours, holy cow, Newt Gingrich is going to be the Speaker of the House. I really think, yeah, 94 and 2016, there's a really strong parallel there. There's a darling video of you on a public access cable <laughs> show um, as like 13 years old or something like that, that was played on Seth Meyers when you went on and then it got picked up on the Today Show and all sorts of other places. We'll link it in the episode notes because it's absolutely adorable. What the hell was going on there? <laughs> that, I, so we, we started this episode talking about the great you know producing team I had for this podcast. One of the things they did was they found that clip. Oh, wow. Um, and because they wanted to, um, you know, I think they had an instinct here to personalize. I, I wanted to stay away from making that. This wasn't a story about me in 1984, but they want to get the host involved a little bit. So they wanted to kind of just what you asked, ask like, what were you doing in 94? And they found that, that this, this clip, which was floating around somewhere. So what it was, was my, uh, uh, the public access station for my town was in the high school where I, you know, it was in the basement of our high school. And, um, two kids, um, who I knew they were great above me did a show on, uh, and they were, it was a comedy show. Um, they were brothers, they were twins. Their names are you know, Ken and Glenn. Uh, I heard from, I, I heard from one of them when this thing you're describing happened a few months ago and they did a comedy show and, um, and I knew them and they asked me to do like a, uh, knowing that I was very into politics, they asked me to do like a political commentary. And so I just, I wrote this like, you know, I, I think it was largely about Oliver North was running for the Senate that year in Virginia. This is this is the huge story in '94. Oliver North, the Iran Contra figure, trying to run for the U.S. Senate. I did a whole thing on the state of that race, and I just I'm reading it, and I was enjoying it because um, I was like, yeah, I watch all these shows on. I watch you know the Capital Gang on CNN. I watch the McLaughlin Group, and now I get to sit in front of this camera in the basement or high school and be the be the pundit. But what I <laughs> what I realized after was, and I don't think they showed this in the clip, but but the they played it as a joke. So they had me read for, you know, five, ten minutes this this detailed analysis of the Virginia Senate race. And then at the bottom of the screen they just started scrolling this thing that was like, does anybody have a clue what Steve is talking about? <laughs> we are getting more and more confused by <laughs> all these this stuff. I mean, I don't, it, was, no. it didn't bother me, and it was it was it was in good fun. But I recognized when they aired, I was like, "Oh, this is a bit." I see they, they were it was a bit for them. Um, it, it was and it was all it was fine. I wasn't I, I wasn't I wasn't upset or anything. But that's that's what that was. It's amazing. Um, 
<clears throat> the podcast is, I, I can't remember if it's like seven episodes long or six, um, but you, you eventually had a bonus episode because you interviewed Newt Gingrich. He wanted to participate in this podcast, in this, this thing that was actually kind of becoming a little bit of his legacy, I think. Um, can you talk about talking with him and what you made of him? What was he like? Yeah, I, um, we obviously, if you listen to the podcast, you'll still hear it. Every episode ends with us saying, we reached out to Newt. He didn't want to participate. We didn't hear back. And we heard back a week after we launched it. And he suddenly was very interested in sitting down and, and talking to us. And what he, what he told me was basically we had a, the first five episodes are the narrative podcast, the story of the late seventies to 1994. The Sixth episode is a roundtable discussion right. of journalists. And he said, basically, he really, he said, your first five episodes, see, something effective when I, when I first met him, he said, your first five episodes were a, a tremendous contribution to history. They were accurate. They were fair. You did a great job with them. Um, your sixth episode, I felt, deserved the rebuttal, the, the pundits talking about him. It's fair he enough. He didn't, like, he didn't like John Podhoritz saying that he had misused the ethics system. That, um, among other things, yeah, that was. And we had tried, listen. We had tried for you know my, my you know we had a, a, a sort of a liberal voice, Eleanor Cliff. We had a, a conservative voice, John Podhoritz. We had Susan Page from USA Today, kind of down the middle. But you know he he had others in mind he would have liked to speak, and then ultimately he decided he wanted to speak for himself. But I I um I, I set out to do something that was you know I think there's a, there are versions of the Gingrich story that I have heard um because there's been a a a kind of revisiting of Newt as a, you know, sort of, sort of origin source of our current politics. There's been a revisiting right. of it. I've seen in some other places. And I, I, I think there's a version of it that gets written. It gets, it gets told that, that misses some things. And I really wanted to, to do it a little differently. And I want to do it in a way that's I, it, not at all fawning, but that it, that it's fair and that it's true to the history and that gets to the, some of the complexities of, of, you know, uh, of the story. And I, I believe that, that he felt we did that because um, there's plenty of stuff in there. If you're a, if you're a Democrat, and you don't like Newt Gingrich. There is plenty of stuff in there. You're going to say, yep, this is why I don't like Newt Gingrich. And we, we got that all all in there. But there were there's a lot more that was going on. And I think we got that in there, too. And I, I don't think he necessarily expected that we would because there's a lot of versions of this that get told that leave a lot of the other stuff out. So I think he appreciated that we did that. And the conversation was, I, I was just, it was an interesting conversation. I mean, everybody who's, people who know him, who go back with him, you know, will, will even those who've kind of fallen out with him through the years will tell you, I mean, he's, he, he's got a very interesting mind. Um, yeah. You know, he's, he thinks a lot about history, about, you know, and he's, he's always, he's almost 80 years old. And, you know, we went to this office complex where he's got Gingrich Productions and his wife was there and they, we walked past one of the rooms. And there was a sign on it, handwritten sign, and it said "Focus Group in Progress." And it was just—it's just interesting. Like he's still—that's it. He's just—he's still trying to figure it out. He's always trying to figure out the moment, you know. You know, he is obviously so gifted at the political machine, but he did not strike me as a politician in a weird way. He struck me as more of an intellectual or a yep. thinker. I don't know if intellectual is is too strong, but I could see him being a sort of Ben Shapiro type in another era. Um, somebody that is an analyst who really understands the moment, who's a great influencer, but he just didn't seem to have that politician's sparkle or charm. Um, does that sound fair? Yeah. Completely. I mean, he, he lacks the, um, and this was the, this was the contrast and it would ultimately, I think 
um, did him in politically uh, when he became the Speaker of the House and suddenly, you know, after the 94 election and suddenly is that shift like in late 1994 from, you know, somebody who was known by political geeks, the political press, like that was his level of name recognition. And then suddenly he's Speaker of the House and he's on the front page of every major magazine and he's, his, his name recognition shoots up 60%. Um, suddenly, the contrast was in 1995 and 1996, Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton. And it's a fascinating contrast because there are a lot of similarities between them if you really want to get into it. But the natural political charisma, the natural communication skills of Bill Clinton versus exactly what your Newt Gingrich is not a natural glad hand. He's not a, um, he, he, he's, he's not at his best, you know, getting in front of the camera and just talking. He's not at his best working a rope line. All the skills that made Clinton this, this, um, Clinton's strength, I think, was derived from his relatability, was derived from the empathy that he could kind of convey. And, and I think that's, that was where it really fell apart for Gingrich because the, the major sort of event of 1995 was this new Republican Congress going toe to toe with Bill Clinton. And there's a government shutdown. And Gingrich is convinced that, you know, the, he's going to win this thing on substance. And Clinton's convinced he's going to win. And Clinton, Clinton won it, hands down, politically, easily. And I think ultimately it was a big part of that was, you know, that contrast of, of, of Bill Clinton as a, as a public figure versus Newt Gingrich as a public figure. I think the country just liked Bill Clinton better. I, when, uh, when, uh, when all of a sudden he was going to be going up against Clinton, I like literally heard like a boxing bell match ring. Ding, ding. I was like, oh my God, it's going to be these two guys. And before Gingrich was elected speaker of the house, it kind of seemed to work for him. He was like the guy that could just like be the gadfly and it just kept going after and going after. And of course, Clinton's extremely good at this. It gives him energy. But then as soon as Gingrich is speaker of the house, all of a sudden, he starts listening to people, it seemed to me, that are saying, you have to compromise, you have to back off of this, you got to do all these things. And then he did it. And that was not, it didn't seem to be his strong suit. I think it's interesting that he would be considerate and want to do that. But it just sort of like took, seemed to take some of that air out of him. Well, yeah. And he was, it's one of the things I asked him about too, when I, when, you know, when I interviewed him too, was, you know, I mean, because he, it was, he got elected to Congress in 78. So it was a 16 year journey. Right. To get the Republicans to the majority. And it wasn't just to get the Republicans to the majority. The other thing simultaneously going on was to win the Republicans over to him because he got there and he had like six friends. And, you know, by the end, he's won the party over and he's the de facto leader of the party and in position to become speaker when they get the majority. So he had to do he had to, had to accomplish two things in those 16 years. And then his speakership lasts a little bit less than four years. And he is, as I said, like. Instant, almost instantly, he becomes a political liability to the Republicans nationally. Um, and the other problem is that Republican majority, it's there's tensions within it. Um, right. You know, there was a coup attempt. Uh, you know, they tried to oust him. Republicans tried to oust him as the speaker in early 1997. And there's this it's an incredible story how the thing got thwarted. I mean, they, 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 they had it all but pulled off. And then this one guy who thought that the coup would mean he would become speaker, finds out that the coup plotters want somebody else as speaker. And so what does he do? This is Dick Army. And so what does he do? He goes to Gingrich and he says, oh, hey, they're all plotting against you. And that blow, that blows it all up. But um, yeah, I mean, he, there were all these divisions within the Republican ranks, you know, in, in the House. His, his 
his skills and his strength were strategic in, in I think, um, mobilizing the Republicans as a minority party, getting them on the same page. But then, yeah, it's a totally different set of skills to manage a majority. And, and he'll tell, I, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you my assessment. When you sit down and talk to him, he will still tell you like, look, you know, there, there was a balanced budget in the late 1990s. That was a result of the, you know, he'll, he'll say that's a result of the Republicans getting control in, in 94. There was welfare reform. That was a bipartisan thing, but the, the Republicans pushed that. He'll say, hey, we got this Republican Congress reelected in 1996. True enough. You know, there's another side to it too, where, you know, um, 1998, his, his final downfall was the Clinton Lewinsky uh, thing. And, you know, he, he was all over the place on that, where at the beginning he thought this was going to take out Clinton. Then he kind of backs off, but then his party wants to go full bore. And they, a month before the 1998 election, you know, the Republicans vote in the house to begin an impeachment inquiry against Bill Clinton. And the polls are strong, showing the country is strongly against this. Mm -hmm. And the 1998 midterms are the Republicans actually lose seats, which is just unheard of, uh, you know, for the, for the, um, opposition party to lose seats in a midterm and three days later that was it Gingrich was uh was forced out and and um never won elected office again never really saw it besides the presidency there are some amazing pivot moments in your podcast one of them that surprised me um was that it's possible that Newt Gingrich was actually the hello smoke and we've got him listeners if you are hearing this that means you have just listened to the free portion of our oh I don't know bi-weekly episodes with Sarah Hepla Sarah Hepla who's just so busy right now she could not record this little uh interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.